So another episode of the Darko Audio Podcast is upon us. This time we welcome back Jack Ockley Brown from KEF to talk about KEF's new KC62 subwoofer. And it's quite small, isn't it? Yes, it is. It is. That's the target we set ourselves to try and um, push the size down as far as we could with still, you know, the kind of the expectation that this had to be a proper subwoofer delivering, you know, proper deep bass, not um, a kind of uh, subset system you might see with a, a computer speaker where it's not really the deep bass, it's doing the mid bass. This was, you know, the intention was always, this is a proper subwoofer. How mm. small can we make it? Right. So how big are the drivers in this thing? Uh, there's two six and a half inch cones uh on opposite faces and uh for those who haven't seen it, it's kind of cube shaped little mm. thing and it is pretty dinky i mean uh in, you kind of have to see it maybe in the context of other things when you see pictures of it on its own it's hard to get an idea of the scale but when you see it next to maybe one of our other speakers like an ls50 it's mm. not far off the same width so it's really really very small Okay, so what I'll do is I'll make sure that when this podcast goes live, I'll have a photo of maybe it next to a can of Coke or something like that. You know? Yeah. yeah. Am yeah. I right in thinking that this thing goes down or is rated down to eleven hertz? Yeah, it goes seriously low. Uh, I mean, we've we've the whole thing is a bit of a battle against the the physics of the situation. Fundamentally, it's it doesn't want to work mm -hmm. you know this uh, trying to make something so small uh give any kind of decent base output is has been a real challenge and there's lots of things we've had to do to make it work and um one of those things is some quite clever dsp technology which means that as you're playing different signals there's always a little bit of dsp running looking at what you're asking the sub to do mm -hmm. and deciding how much can be delivered by the amp and by the driver. So if you're playing um, within, uh, you know, the capabilities of what the driver can do, it can extend the output all the way down to 11 hertz. Mm. Um, if you're in the middle of a movie and there's a big explosion, it will rein that in and pull the extension up a bit just so we protect our drivers from damage and our amps from clipping but yes it can do it at low levels right so that constant monitoring by the dsp does that have a fancy kef name that particular one is called <laughs> i think <laughs> you've called me out john i can't i'm remember. sorry i'm sorry <laughs> well i know because could think... you guys like to name your technologies as many companies do and i just wondered whether yeah, okay, no, you describe... it's intelligent base extension that one yes right. sorry oh, no man. it's okay it's all right you caught me out there <laughs> no i mean it is this is one of the things that i think is a challenge for our marketing team is we, we're we're trying to innovate and work on new technology and uh, they get the unenviable task of trying to communicate that to people in a way that's meaningful. Mm. And I think it, it, you know, it kind of ends up being packaged into, you know, technologies with names and <laughs> yeah. yeah. Sorry. Often the technology has been around a lot longer than the name. So yeah, it takes me a second sometimes to remember. <laughs> well, I guess, that. no, it's okay. Cause obviously if you're working on something for so long and you're doing R and D on it, then you probably, you probably didn't call it that in the lab. You probably didn't have, a, like you said, didn't have a name for it back then. So it yeah. probably doesn't enter into your sort of everyday vernacular in in your research and development department. But we, that's right. We normally have names for the technologies we're working on, but we're you know very few of them make it to public release. <laughs> Put it that way. Okay. Well, look, let, I'll allow you to redeem yourself here, Jack, by like, <laughs> what is the name of the tech that you've used to get these two force cancelling uh, drivers inside such a small, small box? Ah, uh, well, I know that one. That was a unicorn. So, mm -hmm. I mean, I mentioned, you know, we're fighting against, against the thing not really wanting to work. So mm -hmm. there's lots of kind of problems with what we're trying to do. And mm -hmm. Fundamentally, the, 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 the starting point that makes this difficult is all about the volume of air inside mm. the loudspeaker cabinet. So mm. th there's a direct link between 
the volume of air you have inside a loudspeaker and how efficient it is um, um, at producing low frequencies. And the relationship between the volume and how much bass you can deliver efficiency is a pretty hard one uh, mm. because it's frequency um, cubed. So what that means is as you make the box smaller, the bass efficiency drops like a stone. Right. So it's really challenging to keep pushing smaller and smaller and smaller and still get something that can deliver good output. So you you end up having to you know, use huge amplifiers mm. to overcome uh, the uh, force. Well, you need a lot of force to compress the air inside this tiny box and to move the driver significantly. And then you have all these knock-on effects of, you know, then the driver's got to, you know, withstand higher power handling and at the same time we've got more compact things so we've got more power density as well so there's mm. more heat to get out so it really is a tough a tough thing to do um and uh it's been a challenge but central to um this is physically just getting the drivers in you know once, once you go below a certain size you really are scraping around for the last few uh, millimeters of space. Mm. Um, so we, we always wanted it to be a force cancel design with drivers on opposing faces. Mm. And maybe we'll come back to that mm, in okay. a minute. But once you do that, you kind of say, well, whatever the width of my cabinet is, I've got to design a driver that can deliver you know, lots of excursion in half that width because I'm going to put another one you know, mirror image back to back so we, we struggled with that for a long time and you know the two things are almost incompatible a shallow driver that can move a long way mm. suddenly everything is uh fighting against you so we got to a point where um kind of said well if we're going to really try and make this perform well we're going to have to do something a bit different and um it's kind of honestly an idea that we'd been skirting around and avoiding <laughs> talking about because everybody kind of thought it was a can of worms. But mm -hmm. one of the things you can do is say, well, clearly we need our two cones, but why don't we try and make one motor system that drives both? Mm -hmm. And then, you know, we can save some space by uh, having, you know, the same magnetic circuit for both sides. So we save a bit of depth there. And, you know, we were talking about reusing some of the steel work as well. So, the steelwork that's carrying the magnetic field. Mm. Uh, and then we kind of went a bit beyond that and said, well, what if, you know, what if, you know, the two coils are different diameters so that when the two cones move into the box towards each other, they can't hit each other. They would, you know, go one inside the other. And, mm -hmm. and so this is, this is the kind of discussion we had. And it was honestly one of those where, you know, quite quickly, you know, you can sketch up ideas, but you, you know, we had a bit of trepidation about actually um, following up on it because it just seemed like something that was going to be a hiding to nothing. Mm. So um, can I just come in here? Because yeah. we haven't actually specified the size of the, uh, the KC62's enclosure because it's 25 centimetres cubed thereabouts, right? Yeah. So does yeah. that mean you've only got sort of 12-ish centimetres for each driver to sort of work, work in? Yeah, if you were doing it, you know, as we have done in the past and as many other manufacturers have done in the past where you're trying to do force cancelling, you just take more or less two conventional drivers and pick them back to back. So, yeah, you, you have 12 and a half centimetres of space. In in fact, you, you lose out straight away on, on a little bit of that as soon as you have to have some clearance for the movement of the right. driver. You have to have the thickness of the box walls and some space behind them. So, you know, you end up really looking at something like ten centimeters depth, right? So with so, so with overlapping voice coils, um, you can give each driver more room to would do its thing really to move. Yeah, that's exactly right. right. So yeah, you you one of the key things with getting high excursion is making sure it's stable. Mm. So you need the driver to be going you know straight axially moving in and out of the motor as soon as you get some sideways movement or some rocking uh then you know things go nasty quite quickly you get nasty noises or worse still you'll get failure because um, your coil will start to rub on the metalwork so really that 
when you're squeezing down the height of a driver, one of the easiest things to do is make the cone shallow mm. and move the uh, spider closer to the surround, so the two flexible parts that hold the cone. And as you do that, you just get less and less stability and the likelihood of the movement not being purely in and out goes up and up and up. And you, mm. you kind of hit a, a critical point where it just blows itself up, if you like. <laughs> so okay, you know, the, <laughs> that that was the thing we were over, you know trying to overcome and say, well, can we keep a good distance between you know the the surround you see on the outside and the spider which is inside supporting the coil? Can we keep those two f- further apart? And and really, the only way is to make the motor slimmer. Mm. And then, you know, if you've got identical coils, the, the limiting factor is that those will hit each other at some point. So then the next step is is this idea of let's have one coil big and one coil small so that actually we can make them occupy the same space when they're moving backwards. So, so does, the, does the coil diameter difference make – I'm sorry for this noob question, but does it make a difference to the, the driver's properties and therefore do you have yeah. to correct for it elsewhere? yeah i mean i mentioned kind of quite quickly once we said okay let's try and do something different quite quickly came up with the sketch of how about this with Mm. these two different size coils and then you could almost see everybody involved in the conversation wince and go oh no (laughs) because the for force cancelling to work the two drivers have to be very very similar in Mm. their properties and one of you know the key things is the, the what we'd call the BL. It's the strength of the motor system, mm. and the the coil diameter is quite fundamental to that. So if you change the coil diameter, then um, you normally would end up with a different um, motor strength. So the, the the other thing is just the mass. So the mass of the two cone well, moving parts, including the cones and the coils, needs to be the same on both drivers. And as you go to a bigger coil, uh, the mass normally is higher. Mm. So that was kind of the, the thing that we were worried about actually at the very beginning was can we can we get this to work you mm. know? okay you know we we thought it might be possible to assemble something like this but would it actually perform correctly mm. and it was a very interesting situation because i haven't seen many many like this actually because as we 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 kind of said, okay, well, let's try it. Let's do some simulations and see if it's going to work. And the thing that surprised us is that a lot of our concerns turned out not to be a problem. Um, so, for example, the motor strength, we found it kind of naturally balances itself. So the, the bigger coil mm. ends up having uh, a longer wire because, you, you know, you imagine you're winding this coil and it's bigger diameter you end up with more length of wire wound mm. into that but the smaller coil the magnetic gap turns out to have more flux in it so it's the smaller coils exposed to a slightly stronger field magnetic field mm. and those two actually balance themselves out really nicely so we found in simulation as you know, as soon as we started putting pen to paper in a serious way we found actually we could get the motor strength to be the same even though these coils were different sizes so that was you know one of the things that surprised us early on mm. so you uh, so sorry i want to come in there because you said the word simulation and mm. i'm guessing so you developed this sort of in in software initially is that right yeah i mean that's uh, pretty much the case for all of the drivers we we develop it they're all simulated up front and mm. one of the beauties of simulation is exactly stuff like this that you you can very very quickly try out a, a, on the face of it what looks like a silly idea mm. um and maybe it won't turn out to be so silly or or you can through the course of a few days or a couple of weeks of simulation you can get from something that was silly to something that's a bit more sensible mm. um, and that's the beauty of it really um as much you know, as much as it's also been important for us to refine uh, kind of more conventional drivers, it's this ability to try out very ambitious things, which is really exciting about simulation. So you, I would imagine then, therefore, you get more leeway to go nuts in your lab. Yeah. This is something I've said to people quite a few times, that if you think about trying to do this without simulation, 
then it would need quite a bit of engineering time mm-hmm. to build up prototypes mm-hmm. and we'd have to get parts made and you know dedicate lab time and, and people to do it and do the experimentation so for me you know running the team i'd have to quite early on go up to our you know cash management and say we think there's something in this and uh, you know we want to invest x amount of time and money in it um and for something like this, you know, I'd be challenged quite strongly. <laughs> so do you think right. it's going to work? And hand on heart, you know, I probably at the beginning would have said, no, I don't think it's going to work. Really? And the, the, the idea would have been <laughs> pretty much dead. And the beauty of simulation is that you can try out something like this, you know, with relatively little investment quite quickly. Uh, and and it gives you the, the chance to do, do things which are more ambitious. Mm. That's interesting because I mean, really, what you're saying is, is without software, this this product might never have come to fruition. Yeah, it wouldn't have. It wouldn't have. I wanted to ask you about PFLEX. Yes, PFLEX. Yeah. What's PFLEX? <laughs> so there's an. As I say, this thing just doesn't really want to work. So one one of the things that we found. In a, it actually was a research project running before this one started out, just to mm. try and uh, look at problems that we would have when we shrink the box volume down and down and down. So the big issue really is that you get a huge pressure difference. Mm. So if you have a very small box and you have a driver and it moves a certain amount, then the volume of the enclosure changes substantially. So if you can imagine that. So the pressure inside changes substantially. And that tries to push the driver back to its resting position. And and this is really the whole problem that, you know, you're trying to overcome in a, in a small system that leads you to have really high power amps and so on. Mm. That air pressure is pushing on everything. It's pushing on the internal walls of the enclosure and everything else. So, you know, it's pushing on the back of all the flexible parts of the surround is, you know, uh, really exposed there. So surround is normally made of very thin rubber. So mm-hmm. in a lot of our products, it's half a mil thick, sometimes even less. So we found uh, putting together a few different prototypes in very small boxes that you ran into this problem where the uh, kind of normal half roll surround that we would typically use starts to be pushed back and invert under the air pressure. Mm-hmm. So you can take a driver that, you know, in a big box can deliver a lot of excursion. And then when you put it into a small box, it starts to make a horrible noise at a fraction of its capability. Mm. So we, you know, then again, you know, that's another kind of key key story where simulation stepped in. So one of the first things we did was say, well, this is something we're missing when we do our simulation. We would normally do simulations of all the flexible parts to see how they deform as the driver moves out to its full excursion. Mm-hmm. Um, but we'd normally do that not considering the air pressure at all. Mm. Um, so the first stage was actually to say, well, can we replicate this problem? And um, we uh, found you know, a way to include the pressure load. Uh, and then we also found something else which is a little bit interesting, <laughs> hopefully, hopefully interesting for everyone listening, which is that you, the problems you get when the surround starts to invert, the what we'd call buckling. So the surround kind of goes into these star-shaped um, folds. Mm. And one of the things we always um, rely on in, in simulation is, is simplifying models whenever we can so quite often we do two-dimensional simulations of the surround just you know with the shape of the cross section but once we'd seen the deformation in the driver it was obvious that we weren't capturing the full behavior with that so we had to go to a lot more 3d simulation mm-hmm. so kind of being able to replicate the problem on the computer is kind of the first step because then you can try out things and you can try and understand you know the parameters involved and what you need to do to to overcome it so mm. that's where we started and we then started to look for geometries which could withstand the pressure but still allow pretty free movement of the driver and that's where the the p-flex technology came from 
uh, which, mm. you know, it's kind of a little bit buried in the KC-62 because it's an inverted roll. But if you look closely, you see it's very, very, very heavily pleated. And the pleating adds uh, a lot more strength to the half roll and, and resists the pressure a lot better than a normal shape surround. Right. So if you look closely at the the surround of the driver, you'll see that pleating. So what's mm. the, what material have you used for that? It, it's still... Uh, the same kind of rubbers oh, we would okay. use for which sounds in the one sense unimpressive but it's something that always surprises me um is the, the optimizing the geometry of parts is really really powerful in in any kind of engineering uh you know the difference between uh how rigid something is when you change the material is one thing but if you change the shape you can have a huge impact on that so mm. you can think of some really simple examples like you take a sheet of paper it's got no rigidity at all you know a4 sheet from your printer mm. um you fold it into an airplane it's suddenly a structure yes or or more relevant for us you wrap it into a cone and then you've given it rigidity so you you can use simulation really effectively to optimize geometry Huh. to add characteristics to things that you're looking for. And and so really, from an engineering perspective, I always like that approach because uh, it's something you can control mm. very, very well. Um, obviously, there's benefits in looking for different materials as well, but the geometry shouldn't be underestimated. Right. I, I had no idea you could do so much in software. So does this mean that you also simulated the amplifier requirements for this sub we do yeah we do um the it depends on different products i mean in 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 this one this is using an electronics platform which is shared between other products so we we have a, a two by 500 watt platform that we selected as being mm -hmm. appropriate but the, it is something that we we do quite a lot is look at you know especially in a system that's active when we know we've got to use EQ to flatten the response or extend the base, that mm. changes the requirements of the amp quite dramatically. So, yeah, we, we try and kind of simulate the whole signal path to understand um, what is going to be required. And, you know, both the amplifier sizing, but you can also use it to understand, you know, the kind of worst situation in terms of stressing the amplifier or how much heat is going to build up. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, we... we we do quite comprehensive work to try and understand all of the different you know compromises and, and parameters that we need to optimize right i see so if it before i ask you about the next sort of techie thing i just want to mm. sort of zoom out a little bit mm -hmm. and ask you what do you did you sort of perceive that there was a need in the marketplace for a very small subwoofer I mean, or was the, was the market pointing in that direction already? Um, I don't know if the market was necessarily asking for this. <laughs> but, I, <laughs> but I think it's kind of just there bubbling away below the surface that people are after more performance from mm. small enclosures. Now, maybe not everybody, to, to be absolutely fair. I mean, there are... Um, some lucky people have lots and lots of space and um, can put in big speakers and enjoy rich, deep, wonderful sound mm. um, without, you know, the kind of extremes that we're going to hear. But uh, for a lot of people, and I'd include me in that, we, we have listening rooms which aren't dedicated rooms. They're kind of multifunctional spaces, family spaces. You've got mm. uh, TVs set up there that's used by everybody. And, and we're trying to, you know, get the best sound we can within, you know, restrictions. And for for a lot of people, I think even a conventional single subwoofer is not really something they can consider having in in their 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 room. Because uh, I guess a, you know, typical smallest subwoofer out in the market is something like 30, 35, 30 centimeter cube. It's not huge, but it's still something you've got to find space for. So. We we kind of had a pretty high confidence that if we could make something work, kind of a scale down from that, that people would be interested in 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 
in buying it and owning it. Mm. But I think I think the key judgment that we had to make was that you know as we push smaller and smaller and smaller, it gets harder and harder to deliver real performance. And we're kind of aware at some point it, we we will have gone too far and we'll produce something that's um, just not desirable because it won't perform enough. So that that was the thing that was quite hard to judge mm. is how small how small to go. I mean, I, I think you have tapped into something because I've seen quite a few people muttering online about how they would never consider a subwoofer, and I'm one of mm. them. And, <laughs> you know, like I, I would have never taken – I mean, that's why I don't do subs very often, but the fact is it's small, it's compact. I live in an apartment. You know, it can be tucked away. There are other features on this thing that also have swayed me towards it. But I guess the other – yeah, the, I, this is the other sort of – there are points of friction with everything, and we've talked about this before, right? This sort of the, the you want a frictionless experience for your end user, hmm. and for me, one of the biggest points of friction for subwoofers is integration, is setting them up, because you basically hmm. are asking me or you know anybody buying one of these is to sort of almost design their hmm. own crossover. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And so, and I'm not. This is not me. This is this is a general sub thing. But I'm pr I'm prepared to tackle that because it is a small thing, and I know that position matters, and I want to be able to try it in different places because there aren't many places I can put it in my lounge room. Probably like mm. a lot of people, because I got to say, a lot of people probably don't even want to look at a subwoofer especially if they've already got speakers. I mean, you know, there are balances to be struck in domestic environments. But, I mean, these can be wireless. Well, this subwoofer can be wirelessly linked to the LS50 Wireless 2. But before yes. I – and that's, that's the, the main appeal for me. But before we get to that, I have to ask you about this other feature that, that the KC62 had has called Smart Distortion Control Technology. Yeah, that's probably the third the third of the kind of three big mm. tech things we had to develop. So, you know, driver is is kind of like a uh more or less a packing thing. How how do you get something in that doesn't want to fit? And then the P the P flex around just to enable performance. Mm. We we needed to have that. The the other thing that happens as you try and shrink the volume of the enclosure is you get more and more distortion. Mm -hmm. Um so the air inside the enclosure acts pretty much like a spring. So as the drivers are moving, the air is trying to restore them back to their original position. And if the enclosure is quite big, then that spring is uh, quite linear. So what I mean by that is that if you, if you stretch it, you get a force pulling you back to the original mm -hmm. position. If you stretch it by the same amount again, mm. you get twice the force, and that's a linear spring. So mm. you get this linear relationship between how much you've extended it and how much force is pushing back. Mm -hmm. But when when you start to shrink the box down to such a compact size, then this effect becomes nonlinear. Mm. And what happens is that when the driver is displaced inwards, the force pushing it outwards is greater than if you displace the driver outwards by the same amount. Mm -hmm. So that causes distortion. And, you know, we can make the driver as good as we want, but if that's there, we, we fundamentally won't get low distortion, clean sound. So this is a problem as well. We've been um, planning on having you know, a, a workaround for quite a long time. And this is the first product we've put out there with something more, than kind of uh, an amplifier connected to the driver. Um, so what it has is a combination of two things that reduce distortion. So first of all, there's a special feedback loop in the amplifier, and it monitors the current that the, amp uh, that the driver is drawing from mm -hmm. the amplifier and mm -hmm. feeds that back. And the reason that's significant is that when the driver moves, there's uh, an el el electromagnetic current that's generated by the movement so just the coil moving through the motor system causes um, a current and this current is actually proportional to the speed of the movement mm -hmm. so by having this feedback loop, we can actually better control the movement of the driver now, the caveat to that is that it's not a perfect mm. 
measurement of the driver mo- movement because the driver itself has got um, nonlinearity in. So to make this thing work really well, we have a little extra bit in the DSP mm. which pre-distorts the signal we're sending to the driver. So that sounds bizarre, but we're distorting the signal in just the right way that it compensates for what the driver and the amplifier are doing. So it's a bit like um, like how a noise-cancelling headphone might work. Yeah, that's a good analogy, yeah. So it means we have to kind of intimately know the characteristics of the driver and the amp system so that you know we can predict the distortion that that will naturally generate and then we have to calculate what we add Hmm. to to cancel that right it's um been a bit of a tough nut to crack um but it is really worthwhile and that's um worth a quite big distortion reduction in the overall performance so it's around about around about seventy five percent, and it works mostly at, at very low frequencies, so between uh, twenty hertz and, and forty hertz, where we get the biggest reduction mm. in the THD. And that's also the area where we really, really need it as well. That's the area where you know it's getting harder and harder to produce those frequencies, and we're having to use a lot of power. So it's definitely one aspect of the KC sixty two which gives it the kind of surprising performance that you, you're not expecting. So mm. it's not just going, you know, loud, it's also clean. So did you ha- did you have to make a, tr- like, I can see that your spec rating for SPL is 105 dB. Um, so d- did you have to make a trade-off between that and the, the lowest reach of frequency that- reach? That's handled by the other DSP system we spoke about at the beginning, which is right. the intelligent base extension. So, you know, the, the hundred and five. I've seen I've seen a little bit of consternation about this, so I'll be <laughs> upfront about that. But sure. the you know, the spec sheets, you know, we we define how we are measuring those specs. Mm-hmm. So, the eleven hertz extension is best case. You know, when you're playing within the limit of what the driver can do. The maximum output is, you know, when you turn the thing up and up and up and up with all the protection systems we've built in in engaged, what is the maximum you can get out of that? Mm. So, you know, the protection system is stepping in to prevent the driver going uh, too far, which means that at 105 dB, you're not getting 105 dB at 11 hertz. Right. So you'd be a higher frequency, right? Yeah, that's right. Mm. That's right. So... One of the keys with that system is actually, you know, making sure it's not stepping in too soon because we don't want to curtail genuine performance that our users can enjoy. Mm. Um, it's also got to step in effectively enough that it prevents damage. Though. So lots of manufacturers have got a kind of DSP solution for that issue. Um, that's a challenging one to get right um, so that it's not really obvious to the user that something's happening. So I, I'm think we've done a pretty good job on on that when you play the system it will just kind of find the right extension for what you're playing and it's not modulating things badly so that you're hearing strange effects it just is quite transparently done Mm. so i guess i've got another noob question for you is that why why go down to 11 i mean i know it's only a few deep a couple of db down at 11 why go why go that low when music very rarely goes that low if at all the the system kind of allows you to go as low as you want so you know it it, it is kind of a folly at some point because Mm. you you end up having um an extension that isn't useful Mm -hmm. um so we we set it uh down there um but yeah i mean we could we, we could go lower but it doesn't really become very useful but one thing for for me is the the effective kind of fundamental roll-off of a system mm. it has uh, a, an effect on the group delay of, of the response so the what do i mean by that i mean if you put in different frequencies they have a different delay mm. when they come through the system yep. so it's a great thing for you know in my mind to push down the cutoff uh, the cut on frequency as far as you can so that you get that out of the audible band so um that's that's why why we've allowed it to go all the way down um 
So you're, so you're getting better group delay because you've pushed the limits of the, the speaker all the way down to 11. Yeah, so if you push the cut uh, the cutoff frequency further down, then you uh, move the this area of increased delay further down because that does creep up above the cutoff frequency. Right, I see, I see. Can we talk about how to connect this to a hi-fi system? Can we just bring it back to um yeah, yeah, <laughs> to real <laughs> to real life? So you can obviously, I mean, do you do you need to connect? Both obviously left and right from a, like a pre-out on your amplifier, you know the RCA connectors. You can do you can do it lots of different ways. I mean, I think I think this is still for me one of the things about a subsat system you mentioned mm. already that it it's um it's to an extent down to you know the end user to get this sounding good, mm-hmm. and it isn't isn't one hundred percent straightforward, mm-hmm. and you you know you have to kind of know what you're you're doing a bit um one one of the that's one thing maybe you know, maybe we still need to tackle in a bit of a better way but i mean from a very kind of fundamental starting point is how do you connect it up mm-hmm. and what we've started to do on our subwoofers is is try not to second guess too much what how people want to connect it so you'll see on all of the subwoofers we've done in the, in the last couple of years it's pretty comprehensive in terms of how you can connect it up. Mm. Um, so we, we have, you know, RCA inputs, which is fairly standard. So you can connect it to a, a preamp directly. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, I, ideally, you know, that might be an AVR, so that might have a sub out, mm-hmm. but if it isn't an AVR, then, you know, you can still use that. Um, alternatively, we provide uh, speaker level inputs. Mm. On on something this small, uh, we can't provide binding posts, but we provide a little um, screw terminal connector with the sub that you can use. Mm-hmm. Um, there's stereo inputs as well, or you can use a, a mono input if you'd like. Mm-hmm. And um, the other thing we provide is preamp outputs as well. So think with 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 AVRs, it's all kind of fairly standardised how how to go about adding a subwoofer. Mm-hmm. So you you have your AVR. It's got normally a one or even these days possibly two sub outs, and you just connect an RCA lead, and then you have lots and lots of options on screen. Sometimes too many, and they're too confusing. But about what frequencies you're going to direct to the sub, and what you're going to allow the other speakers to do. Mm. And at the moment, we don't really have an equivalent. Um, standard way that you, you do it with music um i mean if you if you're using a small set of speakers like the the meta for example mm. if you're going to use this up it makes sense to try and uh relieve some of the base requirement from the meta or the, you know, the bookshelf speakers and yes. you can get stereo preamps which you've got processing built in to do that mm. but they're not that ubiquitous at the moment so what we've done is we provide a loop through where the kc62 can actually do that um job for you so you can connect your um you could in the old days you'd be connecting in a tape loop but it could be sourced directly into kc62 Mm. and then take the preamp out into uh, your power amp Uh, and if you do that then on the kc62 you can filter out the low frequencies from uh, your main speakers, so that you know they don't have to deal with producing any bass at, or any deep bass at all, and you can let the KC62 handle it all. Mm. So it's quite comprehensive. There's lots of different ways you you can connect it up. Um, so on the one hand, that's a great amount of flexibility. On the other hand, it can be quite a lot for a user to take in and understand what the best option for them is. Mm. So if, I mean, if I talk about it from a very selfish point of view, like (laughs) if I set up a pair of LS50 wireless 2, each of those speakers has a single RCA socket, I believe that has a, it is marked as sub out. And I want to add one KC62 to my system. What do I do with that socket? Yeah, I mean, in this case, we're in much more control of your audio system because you've got kef sub kef kef mm-hmm. um, active speakers so that's designed to give you kind of an easy job so you can choose to put your sub close to 
either the left speaker or the right speaker, mm. whatever suits you, and whichever one you're closest to, just plug an RCA cable from the sub out into your KC62. And then everything else is handled on the LS50 W2 app. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you, you know, by default, the two sub outs are playing the same mono sub signal anyway. And on the app, you can control what you what frequency you want the subwoofer to handle up to, and you can enable a high-pass filter for the output of the W2 mm-hmm. as well so that they don't have to handle the deep bass. So that's really easy for us. And I mean, even that, though, for, for some users is a complexity level beyond what they want to deal with. So mm-hmm. we, we've released a firmware update um, around about two weeks ago that introduces presets mm-hmm. So nowadays, all you need to do is just select that you've got the KC62, mm. and we will pre-populate the settings with something that should get you uh, a decent sound. Mm. Um, I mean, our original intention with the presets was, you know, kind of thinking of it like we'll get you a starting point. But the more <laughs> rooms we've been into mm. with with that preset, the more we found it kind of, in most cases, just works mm. and it's hard to beat by tweaking. <laughs> well, this, I mean, but this is important though. And I guess this is why I agreed to do this was because I knew that you were going to do something inside the LS50 Wireless 2 app that would make it mm. much easier for people like me who've never really messed around with subs too often just to kind of connect it with a single cable and obviously mains cable as well, and then pull up the app mm. and go, right, give me that. And then I would assume the app also sets the gain on each one, or do you have to set the gain manually? Yeah. Uh, there, uh, there's a process. So we we um, have a little picture. You say set the KC62 volume knob. I think it's to three o'clock setting. Right. So you you do that, and then we'll preset the gain on the W2 for the sub out. So it should be about right. And you you may need to just adjust a little bit to your taste, but it should should get you something, you know, within a few minutes that is sounding pretty well, more than pretty decent, mm. very decent. Interesting. So you've, you've made it as idiot-proof as, as you possibly can, given the constraints of this kind of configuration. Yeah, I, that that was the intention. I, I mean, and to be totally fair to, you know, even people who are trying to do this with a lot of knowledge and a lot of equipment, the way that we've done these presets is kind of cheating because what we've done is we've treated it as if it's one speaker. So we, you know, we kind of have the W2 and we have the KC62, and we measure them both, and we effectively design a crossover as if we were doing it as a three-way speaker. But that's that's so but we, that's brilliant because then you don't ask the end user to do that for because that's the hard <laughs> no, part, that's right? A, that's <laughs> a, so absolutely, I think. I mean, the, the whole this whole project made me maybe you know reconsider subset systems a little bit mm. because for me, I've had so many subset systems where. It, it's kind of like, well, there's the sat that I can hear and there's the sub that I can hear. Right. This isn't a cohesive experience. And for, for me, anything that then, you know, the sub is giving in terms of like deep extension mm. isn't worth it. It's not, you know, really making a benefit for me. So I've always kind of had this question mark in my mind about, well, is it just that that doesn't, that whole concept doesn't work? But do, doing this whole process really convinces me it's just because it's, horrible thing to ask an end user to do in their home mm-hmm. <laughs> you know as a professional who designs loudspeakers if you said to if you gave me a a two-way loudspeaker and said design a crossover between the mid-range and the high frequency without any <laughs> prior knowledge and you're doing it in a room i'd really right. you know, I'd be doing it all by ear i mean hopefully i'd like to think i'd get something eventually but i certainly couldn't do it very quickly and I'd want to have some equipment to do it. So yeah. why are we asking, uh, you know, that's kind of what we're asking people to do yes. with conventional subsets. Yeah, I don't think, so, sorry, I don't think this gets talked about enough because I've, I've seen a couple of, oh, I mean, I have to be careful here because I'm not criticizing anybody, but I have seen a couple of videos about the KC62 already on YouTube and not much has been, the, the setup process, the installation process was very, very rarely discussed. And I think that is the number one friction point for most people. I mean, I guess once you get beyond that, yeah, you can talk about how it sounds and all these kinds of things. But I think uh, because I want to make this stuff sort of more relatable to more people, I guess that's my sort of MO. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm all about that. But one thing I guess I was going to say is that because you've got the KC62 
lassoed to one of the LS50Ws with a RCA cable, that means it's probably going to go like against the wall or maybe even in a corner. And you've got compensation mm-hmm. for that on the back of the unit with your DSP EQ, right? Yeah, yeah. And that, again, it's fairly fairly rudimentary stuff, but it makes a big difference mm. for, for users. Mm-hmm. So it's um, a multi-position switch. I think there's five yes. positions with four. You know, there's a free space one, but then there's four presets. And it's just simple stuff that most people can understand and answer, you know, is it next to a wall? Is it in the corner? Have you put it in, in a cabinet? Um, and, you know, we're having to estimate the effects. Uh, but we're doing that here using our lab mm. to see, you know, in a few different configurations like that, what the effect is. So um, it can make a big difference to somebody uh, having that versus not. Um, mm. and, and I think, you know, John, we've spoken before about that being kind of one of the big advantages of active is adaptability. Yes. So we've talked about that on the W2 yes. as well. So yeah. You, you get it home and have much higher degree of confidence you can get it to work because of the adapt- adaptability. Mm. What's the apartment setting for? Uh, that's um, to try and prevent your neighbors from complaining. <laughs> so that's interesting because I have told my neighbor, I said, look, I'm going to be doing using a subwoofer soon. So if you hear more bass through the wall, I'm really sorry. It won't be for too long. <laughs> But so if I click that yeah. on, is that is it is that a bit? How does that? Work? It is a compromise for you though, because it does cut um, mm. the very deep, okay. the deep stuff. So it, it, you know, it, it it won't sound as good. But deep bass transmits through structures mm. like nothing mm. else, and and you know we we just put that one in there as a as a kind of like this might be useful for for some people. Also, with the expectation that it might not be used all the time. Mm. You know, it might just be, you know, that their system is in, played loud and enjoyed during the day and that wouldn't be acceptable at Correct, night. So yeah. click click this on and, and, you know, you can stay friends with whoever lives underneath you. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm quite fortunate because beneath my apartment are offices. But like I say, mm. I do have a neighbor like who lives behind Across the, the front wall. wall. Yeah. So where the speakers are and where the sub is going to go, I'm going to put the sub yeah. right in that. Well, they, yeah, that, that sort of yeah. <laughs> intersection between the two apartments. <laughs> and yeah. yeah, she's going to feel it, but that's, you know, <laughs> but she's lived through uh, Dutch and Dutch HC and um, E3, say, so, I mean, you know. <laughs> living living next door to you, John, she's oh, especially, tolerant already. Especially, <laughs> especially if I do play some techno, oh my goodness. <laughs> um, but the thing is, though, I don't, this is the, this is the, the kind of the, the magical part of this story for me, I think, is I don't have to put that, that the KC62 along that wall if I don't want to. I can physically disconnect it from the LS50W2 and say, put it on a side wall and then have the sub and the SAT, so the LS50W2, communicate over, is it 2448 kilohertz wireless? Yeah, that's right. The KW1, the little wireless kit mm. that we. Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, I think the combination is very, very cool because uh, mm. that's the thing. the The other thing is the the cables, isn't it? So yes, it's not uh, physically getting a small sub. That's kind of part one, but part two is, you know, the cables can also prevent you from actually wanting to have it in in your room in the position that works for you so yeah the, the wireless kits um essential for that kind of user mm. and you know it could it could also free up some better performance so sub subwoofer positioning in in the room can be very critical mm. so if that means that you can put it somewhere where you know it's giving you better performance then we well, see that's also something that is a big advantage i look at it slightly well slightly differently because especially as a, as a beginner with this kind of thing is that it frees me up to try it in different spots because we're always told, you know, we should move our speakers around and, you know, try different placements. And, that, you know, you can do that within the sort of the limits of your loudspeaker cable or if you're using actives with mm-hmm. mains cable. But with this sort of wireless communication, I can take that KC62 and put it on a sidewall and go, I wonder what it sounds like on the sidewall. Yeah, I yeah. wonder what it sounds yeah. like behind me. I mean, it might be a disaster, but it gives me... I love the experimentation angle of hi-fi, right? I like just trying shit out just because. Like, it's, I guess it's a bit like a more, well, a very dumbed down version of what my, you might do in your lab of like, what if, asking what if, 
this yeah. is a very powerful question that I just I, I really get a kick out of that. So I you know I've mm. got obviously four walls I can you know experiment with in my room and the the wireless KD, KW1 allows me to do that. But I wanted mm. to ask you, are there any compromises by going wireless? Yeah, there are. There's a um, the biggest the biggest compromise is that there's a transmission delay mm. on the KW1. Mm. Um, it's not huge, but um, it is something that you know needs to be considered. Mm. The the nice thing that we were able to do though on the K uh, on the LS50W2 is that because we know what the transmission delay is on the KW1, we just have a little question that says, "Are you using the KW1?" Mm. and then what we do in the DSP of the LS50W2 is we just delay the output of the main speakers ah, so you can, by the same. Right, so you timeline the whole thing. Yeah, so I don't know if you've played with that, but that's fun to have a, a little go of turning on and, on and off. And it's subtle, but you'll hear the difference. Right, so I, I, I have to let you know that I haven't actually unboxed it yet. I'm going to do it tomorrow. Oh, the re Well, the, so let me tell you why. It's because I had a <laughs> bunch of DAC reviews to do, right? And I wanted to get those all done with obviously a passive loudspeaker system. It was, so I had my Wilsons, but my Wilsons was, are coming out tomorrow and then the LS50W2 are going back in and then I'm going to put this sub in and that's when this whole process starts. Like I thought I'd time it with this interview. Well, this discussion, Jack, um, mm. also as a, as a, almost as a primer for me of things I can <laughs> expect because I am going through the same process as probably a lot of your customers will of, of like, well, yeah. I've never used a sub before, you know, what's the deal? Like, what are the things I should look at? And I wanted to come at it that way rather than like, oh yeah, I played with this and that didn't work. And, yeah. you know, that's, um, uh, with that in mind, so one of the things you mentioned is actually a bit of a quandary for mm. me. So we, we know moving the speakers around to different positions of the room is really key mm. to how good they're going to sound. Uh, if you do, obviously you get the same with the subwoofer. Move it to different parts of the room, you'll get a different effect, mm. room effect. But the thing that's quite challenging to resolve is it's part of a wider system. It's part of the the whole you know, audio system with the satellites. Mm -hmm. So the position in the room that gives the sub the best room response might not be the same position that gives the best integration. Huh. So that actually is something that's, um, you know, kind of a puzzle, a puzzle. And a tr again, it's kind of a tricky one for people trying to set up subsat systems. Mm. Uh, so if you, you can imagine that, you know, uh, if you, again, if you think about this as a, a three-way loudspeaker in two boxes, mm -hmm. then you know, if we we're thinking of it like that, we'd probably try and put the KC62 close to the uh, speakers. And if you've got one of the KC62, try and do it fairly evenly so it's not nearer one than the mm. other. And that would give you the best chance of getting really good integration. Mm. But uh, that doesn't consider the room effects. So it might might be something that's interesting to think about when you're, when you're moving the sub around. You might uh, have um, some listening you know, experiences which kind of you can marry up with that. Some positions sound great for integration, and then others sound better, in, just in terms of the the quality of the sound from the sub. Yeah, I so. see what you mean. Yeah, I mean, I guess it all comes down to the sort of stitching the whole thing together, right? I mean, I think yeah. initially I'm going to try it between the loudspeakers against that front wall, um, which is probably where most people would put it, just for sort of yeah. aesthetic agreeability, if you like. Um, yeah, that's normally where I would start as well. If I'm just you know trying to set up a subset and get really good integration mm. you know, with a mono sub, it'd be the same distance from me to the main speakers and me to the sub and the sub dead center. So that that normally gives you the best chance of getting really really good integration. Right. Uh, so would you would you suggest putting the sub on the same lateral plane as the speakers, or just behind it, or in front of it, or? I would put it. Yeah, on the same lateral plane, just a bit behind isn't going to be a problem. Mm. But honestly, the best thing is try try it yeah, out. As you said, yeah. it's not it's not a big sub, so you can move it around. Mm. You've got the wireless kit as well, so you you can play around around with that. Um, the the other thing that as well is maybe while we're talking about it, worth mentioning is I've seen also a couple of 
heads being scratched over the presets for the KC62 on the W2. Mm. Um, so there's a high pass filter frequency and a low pass filter frequency on the W2. Mm-hmm. And if you select the KC62 preset, one of the things you'll notice is they're not the same frequency. And um, the reason why is maybe not obvious, and I've seen some confusion, but mm. that defines the, f- the filter frequency. So it doesn't define the crossover frequency because the crossover is a combination of what the W2's high-pass response does mm. plus the DSP high-pass filter that you're, being, you're applying on top mm-hmm. of that. And to a similar extent, you get the same effect on the 62, that it's got a natural low pass in its response anyway. Right. So I guess if you, would you, if you specify the same frequency for both, would you get a bit of a bump in the frequency response? Yeah, it would depend on exactly which subwoofer you're using. But in the case of the KC62, yes, that's what we found. So it's important that the there's a little bit of offset between those two. So when you select a preset, that's what you'll see. Mm. But I just thought it was worth mentioning because I've seen uh, a few a few puzzled comments over shouldn't this be the same right. uh, and uh, it isn't a mistake it, it is um, carefully considered <laughs> uh, and also something that if you're setting up other you know subsat crossovers it, it's not necessarily going to be the case that you always set the high pass frequency the same as a low pass because that's the filters not the whole system right so i, I've, I guess I, i'd like to end by asking you um, I, I guess a more advanced user's question about the advantages of using two subs, not just one. Mm. I mean, could could you speak to this at all? Obviously, I can't. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's there's uh, two major things um, that I, you know, that means in my opinion, it's a really good mm. idea. So uh, maybe the first one that a lot of people probably immediately think is the way that the subs drive the room. Mm-hmm. So if you if you can get multiple subs spread out through the room, you will tend to get less room variation. So as you're moving around the room into different listening positions, the bass will be more even. So that's normally a major advantage for people. Mm. And there's been a lot of um, study into this and AES papers written about it. There's um, Todd Welty is the kind of famous researcher for looking at configurations of multiple subwoofers to deliver very even bass response and it's really really effective um the the kind of ultimate version of that is kind of a setup that's quite prescriptive you have to put the subs in these locations Mm. but the reality is even you know if if you're just getting them in positions that suit you you will benefit from from a more even uh bass response throughout your room so that's a great benefit Mm. the the other one is just in terms of output so you're doubling the um, number of radiators doubling the maximum what we'd call volume displacement in the room so the system will play louder Mm. Um, i mean you have to reconcile that against having another Mm. box but in the case of the kc62 i think you know the the argument's a bit different because of how small it is but the 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 other one that's maybe more major is this this question of integration Mm. So kind of, you know, we're talking already about the speaker system as being like a three-way in in two boxes. Now, you're normally listening to stereo sources or at least something that can be mixed down to stereo. So um, the kind of best position to give you integration that works really well for the left speaker is probably not the same as the Mm -hmm. right. So if you go to stereo subwoofers and you can have... You know, uh, one subwoofer very close to your left-hand channel and one subwoofer very close to your right-hand channel, you'll get better integration. So does the LS50W2 app allow for stereo sub integration? It does now. Yeah, we enabled it again about three weeks ago. It appeared for everybody. So, yeah, you can select stereo. So you don't have to sort of daisy-chain them with cables? No, no. You just connect one to one and one to the other. And press the and button. Can you do wireless stereo integration with LS50W2? I actually need, I don't want to give you a, a false answer on this, but I will double check and give you a, an okay. email later on to say yes. But I mean, I, I would hope so, yes. <laughs> well, yeah, because I know that, look, I'm aware that when when a company is, is, is designing an app and coding an app, 
it's a nightmare, right? And stuff takes ages and it's expensive. And I realized that features have to get rolled out over time because it just takes so long for them mm. to get this stuff working. Oh, I also wanted to mention, sorry, while I think of it, you guys announced rune readiness for LS50W2 yesterday, right? Yes, that's right. It's right. been a long road. Yep. <laughs> yeah, it has been. I mean, and it's been a lot of work behind the scenes to get mm. it right. Uh, but and, and I know a lot of people have been uh, counting the days until this feature came out. So, yeah, we hope that, you know, you're all benefiting from that and enjoying it. I think, you know, once you get it and you see it up and running, you'll see the level integration is really good. Mm. You, you, especially if you look at things like the um, the signal path reporting, you can see there's a lot of work that's gone into that. Jack Ockley-Brown, thank you ever so much for being a fantastic guest yet again. Thanks, John. Really enjoyed talking to you again. You have been listening to the Darko Audio podcast with me, John Darko, and Kef Audio's Jack Ockley-Brown. This episode was produced by Nick McCorriston and music came from Ben Pitt.